The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. My name is Dewey Doval, and it is a joy to be back with my co-host, Austin McCormick, for a very important discussion on evangelizing Roman Catholics. And joining us for today's show is a dear friend of mine. He was a member at the local church I used to attend in South Lake, Texas, and I believe he's he's still a member there with his wife, Jane. Uh, he's also been a missionary to Roman Catholics for over three decades. Some of our listeners may even be familiar with his work on popular Christian productions such as American Gospel. So I trust that their listeners are in for a treat today and that they'll be greatly edified by the contributions made by today's guest. That guest is none other than Mike Gendron. So, Mike, welcome to the Covenant Podcast, brother. It is a delight to have you on today. Well, it's my joy and privilege to be with you, and thank you for the opportunity. There's nothing that I enjoy doing more than equipping the body of Christ to be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, and to our listeners, uh, I actually have had the privilege of hearing um, various discussions that Mike have ha- has had on the subject of, of Roman Catholicism, just his story coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, and um, just how he has approached sharing the biblical gospel and biblical truth with Roman Catholics. So I'm really looking forward to today's episode. And just to get us started, uh, Mike, since you're a first-time guest on the Covenant podcast, would you be willing to tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself, maybe your family, upbringing, education, local church involvement, anything that you feel led to share? to help our listeners get to know you a little bit. Well, sure. I was born into a very devout Roman Catholic family. My dad was an army colonel. My mom was uh, an army nurse. That's actually how they met in World War II when she nursed my dad back to health after he got wounded. But I have three brothers and a sister. And my uncle was a Roman Catholic priest. My aunt was a nun. My uncle actually spent time in Burma. Um, the Southeast Asia, and he converted a lot of the Burmese to Roman Catholicism. Interesting, since my dad was an army colonel, he put in for an assignment in Burma to be next to his brother. And I was 13 years old at the time, and I just was really in awe that my uncle would give up his life to be in the jungles of Burma to convert people to Catholicism. So as I grew up as a Roman Catholic, I was an altar boy for seven years, and Then later on as an adult, I taught high school Catholic Christian doctrine. And even after that, I taught the first Bible study. It's an official Bible study called Little Rock Scripture Study, the first one ever taught in a Roman Catholic church. So it was at that time that I began reading the Bible for the first time. And I had a crisis of faith because what I was reading went diametrically opposed to what I'd been taught as a Roman Catholic. And as a Roman Catholic, I really was very devout to the point where even in college, I went to mass every day during Lent because I understood at that time that God graded on the curve rather than the cross. And so I was trying to build up indulgences so that I would spend less time in purgatory when I died. And so after college, I ended up going to Cape Kennedy, Florida, where I was working with the NASA space program. I was a mathematician and a rocket scientist. And after that, uh, Ross Perot recruited me to Dallas. So that's how I ended up in Dallas back in the early 1970s. And that launched a business career of 17 years. And I was in sales and marketing, selling computers all over the country. And I'll never forget, Dewey, that every time I got on a plane as a devout Catholic, I had this great fear. What if it goes down? Will I end up in hell or purgatory? 
You see, as a Catholic, I had no assurance of going to heaven. And so it's really interesting now as I travel around the world, when I get on a plane, I know that if it goes down, I'm immediately in the presence of my Lord. And there's no greater peace or joy than to know that the moment we die, we'll be with our Lord. But as a Roman Catholic, we never had that assurance. In fact, we had conditional life. Um, whether or not we got to heaven was dependent on what we do instead of what Christ has done. And so during that time, I ended up getting an MBA, Master's in Business, at the University of Texas at Dallas. And it was, uh, I guess, when I was about 34, 35, and I was beginning to study the Bible and teach the first Little Rock Scripture study in the Catholic Church, where I had this crisis of faith because I was reading the plan of salvation in the Bible was diametrically opposed to the plan of salvation that the Catholic Church offered. And I did the wrong thing. I would call my uncle the priest and I'd say, why does the Bible teach a different way of salvation than the Catholic Church? And he said, well, Mike, that's just not true. And I said, well, in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says we're saved by grace through faith. And it's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. And my uncle stunned me with his answer. He said, Mike, Mike, God doesn't really mean what he's saying there. And I thought, wow, how does he know what God is saying? So I continued to read at the Bible, and there was no way to reconcile the two plans of salvation. So I realized at that time, God granted me repentance, and I put my trust in Christ and his word, and I repented of the false teachings and traditions of the Catholic religion. Well, it was shortly thereafter that I realized that God seeks worshipers in spirit and in truth. And I knew I could no longer worship in a church that deceived its people about life's most critical issue. And that is, what must I do to be saved? I think we would all agree that's the most important crisis we face in this life. And so when I left the Catholic Church, I looked for a church that submitted to the authority of Scripture. And I ended up in an evangelical church in Dallas, Northwest Bible Church. And there, some of my instructors were graduates of Dallas Theological Seminary. And I found myself in a Bible study every morning of the week before I went to work. And I just couldn't get enough of God's Word. Well, it was just a matter of time before I realized maybe God's calling me to seminary. And so I ended up enrolling at Dallas Seminary. And an amazing thing happened in my last semester. I was introduced to a video that interviewed former priests and nuns, and it showed their burden for the Catholics they left behind. And as I watched that video, I brought it home and shared it with my wife, who's also a former Catholic. And we decided we needed to share this video with every Roman Catholic we knew. So every Tuesday night, we would invite Catholics over to our house. And over a three-month period, we saw 17 Catholics exchange their religion for a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was really the genesis of our ministry, because what do you do with 17 new babes in Christ? We invited them back over on Wednesday night to help them grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. And, and that's what the Great Commission is. It's not to go and make decisions. It's to go and make disciples. And so we began making disciples of these new converts. And they began asking us to write down the information we were providing. And that was the genesis of our gospel tracks. We now have eight different gospel tracks, three of them dedicated to reaching Roman Catholics. And the other five are very doctrinally sound tracks entitled like, Where Will You Spend Eternity? And You Can Never Do What Christ Has Done. Another one that's um, very popular because of all the false converts in evangelical churches it's called True Faith or False Hope. How can I be sure? And so we also began publishing a monthly newsletter, and that's how the ministry became known. People started passing out the newsletter. And then uh, Tommy Nelson at Denton Bible Church invited me in to do a Sunday morning message. And here I thought I was only preaching to 3,000 people 
little did I know that Tommy also had a cassette ministry that went out all over the world. And so our ministry was now known throughout the world. And it, we just stand in awe because 31 years later, we've pretty much gone around the world several times and primarily in countries that are dominated by Roman Catholicism. And our ministry is to equip and encourage the body of Christ to reach out to Roman Catholics because they don't have the true gospel. They worship a different Christ and ultimately they're on the broad road to destruction. So I have a great compassion for those who are where I was, believing I was in the one true church, but yet destined for a eternity in hell because I was worshiping another Christ. Mm. Yeah, that's very helpful for our audience to know about uh, today's conversation, to get to know you a little bit better and to know uh, your passion that you have to spread the true biblical gospel of uh, salvation by grace alone through faith alone uh, to Roman Catholics. So thank you for uh, introducing ourselves to or yourself to our audience. And uh, as Dewey mentioned, our conversation topic is evangelizing Roman Catholics, which uh, is an extremely important topic, especially to Protestants over the past 500 years. Um, if we were to guess, we would uh, guess that there are likely people listening to today's episode who range anywhere from being very knowledgeable about Roman Catholicism to perhaps not even realizing what Roman Catholics believe uh, about an entirely different gospel um, than Protestants hold to. So with that being said, if you were to summarize the primary differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, what would they be, brother? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question because there are very distinct differences. And that's important because there's many evangelicals today that don't think there are distinctive differences. But it really starts with a different church. And I can, there's seven major differences that I'd like to share, and we can spend a little bit of time on each one. But we start with, we belong to a different church. The Christian belongs to the apostolic church and the Roman Catholic church is an apostate church. We also submit to a different authority. We worship and trust a different Jesus. We believe a different gospel. We have a different view of Mary. We also have a different view of sin, which is very important. And ultimately this leads to a different path to eternity. And so when you look at each one of these differences, starting with a different church, the evangelical church has one head, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Catholic church has two heads, and that would be the Pope, and they also have Jesus as their head. When you become a member of the Lord's church, it's through water, I mean, I'm sorry, it's through spirit baptism, and that's because in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we see that we're baptized by one spirit into one body. That's our entrance into the Lord's church. But in the Catholic church, you enter through water baptism. That's said to be the sacrament of regeneration and also the sacrament of justification. The Christian church is spirit-led, whereas the Catholic church is man-centered. It's, it's based on the teachings of men primarily. When you look at the Christian church, we see from Hebrews 12 that every member of the Christian church, their name is enrolled in heaven. But in the Catholic church, they believe that their members can go to hell if they die in the state of mortal sin. So their names are not enrolled in heaven. In the Christian church, we are to contend earnestly for the faith and the Catholic church has departed from the faith. The Christian church proclaims the gospel and the Catholic Church actually seeks unity of all faiths, including Muslims. So in a sense, we can talk a little bit about that, but I believe the Catholic Church is the catalyst for the global religion that we read about in prophecy. So what are your thoughts regarding the different churches? Have you heard that before or anything you want to add? So for me, I, I've really seen that stress on, you know, Bo both Roman Catholicism and Protestants would affirm that Jesus is the head of the church. However, the, the Roman Catholics would say he's the head of the church in heaven, and, and the, the Pope is the head of the church on earth, whereas Protestants would say, no, Christ is Lord of all, uh, including the church, whether it be the, the universal church in glory 
or the church uh, that is the the saints who are residing on the earth. He's head over both. He's not given that authority to to any man or, or any um, ecclesiastical um, authority on the earth in his place. Christ is the head of his church, both on heaven and on earth. So I'm really glad that you you emphasize that point, Mike. Well, the second point of difference is really very important because it's a different authority. Evangelicals submit to one authority, and that's the, the Word of God, the incarnate Word, the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, whereas the Catholic Church submits to three different authorities. And they're all said to be equal, but in actual practice, it is the bishops of the church made up of the magisterium that sits above scripture and tradition, the other two authorities. And the bishops do an amazing job of twisting and distorting scripture so that it conforms and aligns to their tradition. The Roman Catholic tradition has evolved over the last 1600 years. And we know that the tradition of the apostles was handed down in the first century. In fact, the Bible speaks of three different places where tradition is spoken of in a positive way. They're all apostolic traditions and they're already delivered or already taught. Jude tells us to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. So the body of truth that we are to contend for is the truth that the apostles spoke of as the inspired word of God and also their apostolic traditions. And so when you look at Scripture being the supreme authority, there's a couple of things we can share with Roman Catholics. Number one, Scripture has the authority over men. A good verse for that is Acts 17.11, where Paul is preaching in the synagogues of Berea. And as he's teaching, his listeners are searching the Scriptures daily to test the veracity of an apostle's teacher teaching. He actually wrote over half the New Testament. And so for an apostle to come under that kind of scrutiny where his teaching had to align with the word of God, that shows that scripture has authority over men. We also see the Lord Jesus Christ rebuking the apostate Jews for elevating their tradition above the word of God. And he said, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So clearly scripture must have authority over the words of men and also the traditions of men. Yeah, this is helpful. I, I just want to ask a follow-up question. Um, we've been speaking about the the general, um, very clear, observable differences between um, Protestants and Roman Catholics, but in your uh, introduction of yourself, you did give at least one specific doctrine, uh, namely purgatory, that was a difference. So I'm interested maybe if you could tell our audience some of the dangers of doctrines that Roman Catholics hold to, like uh, purgatory or um, transubstantiation in the uh, sacraments or um, the perpetual virginity of Mary. I know that uh, we didn't ask you to have prepared uh, answers to all these three things, but what are some of the, the dangers of holding to some of these particular doctrines and how do we distinguish um, these doctrines from what Protestants believe about uh, the where the soul goes to be uh, after they die, or um, the elements of um, the bread and the wine, things like this. What? Why are these particular doctrines so significant? Well, let's start with what I call the trilogy of deception. It all starts with what is called venial sins. And a venial sin in the Catholic Church is a lesser sin than mortal sin. For a Catholic, a mortal sin would be committing adultery or murder or missing church on Sunday. And venial sins would be lesser sins like stealing a small amount of merchandise that has little value. But this all started with the lie of the devil in the garden. Remember what Satan told Eve? If you break God's command, you surely shall not die. So the Catholic Church perpetuates the lie of the devil by saying, if you commit a venial sin, you surely shall not die. And so Roman Catholics um, really have very little fear of hell because they can rationalize and say that their sins are venial rather than mortal. We know from Scripture that all sins are mortal. 
The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins will surely die. But because of this deceptive doctrine of venial sins, the Catholic Church invented a place called purgatory. So this isn't where you die eternally. It's where you go to have your venial sins purged by a fire. And so the deceptive doctrine of purgatory led to another deceptive doctrine, the third part of the trilogy, and that is indulgences. Indulgences are the remission of temporal punishment for sin. And so indulgences can be purchased. They can be uh, obtained from the Catholic Church by offering donations. Oftentimes when a Catholic member dies, the family will get together and obtain indulgences by giving money to the church and the priest will write the name of the loved one on the card. He'll lay the card on the altar and that mass is said to be efficacious in removing the Catholic from the fires of purgatory more expeditiously. But a priest will never tell you how many masses must be observed. And it really goes down to our third differences between Catholicism and biblical Christianity, we worship and trust a different Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible offers eternal life. That's the promise of the gospel. But the Jesus of the Catholic Church offers only conditional life. Catholics never know where they're going because their salvation depends on what they do rather than what Christ has done. The biblical Jesus provides a complete forgiveness of sin. The Catholic Jesus provides only a partial forgiveness. We know from Colossians 2.13 and 14 that our eternal sin debt was nailed to the cross. But Catholics say that that's not true. Their Jesus only offers partial forgiveness. The biblical Jesus offers a permanent right standing before God, and that's based on Hebrews 10.14. By one offering, he has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. But the Roman Catholic Jesus offers only a continuous striving for each Catholic to gain God's acceptance. And oftentimes I look at it as being on a treadmill. You're always trying to do your best, but you're going nowhere because God, God demands perfection and Catholics can never obtain that perfection on their own. The last point of difference, uh, the, the biblical Jesus provides peace and assurance, whereas the Catholic Jesus provides a false hope, uncertainty, fear. And so we need to point Roman Catholics to the true Jesus who's gloriously revealed in Scripture. And as we witness to Roman Catholics, we've touched on two of the most important elements of the gospel that we need to share. Number one, we need to point them to the Bible as their supreme authority to test every man's teaching with the word of God. And number two, we need to declare the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ because Catholics will be unwilling to let go of what they're doing until they know Christ has done it all. So providing scriptures that prove the sufficiency of Christ is of utmost importance as we witness to Catholics. Well, I just love that, Mike, how you closed uh, your response there. Uh, it, it's been what Protestants have been doing, or at least uh, seeking to do for the past 500 years. You have the formal cause of the Reformation, the authority of, of Scripture, sola scriptura, um, the, the ultimate authority for life and godliness over God's people. And then you have the material cause of the Protestant Reformation, sola fide, that Christ is sufficient, that faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone is the means whereby God justifies sinners and enables them to be forgiven of their sins and, and, and have full assurance of their salvation, both in this life and in uh, eternity in his kingdom. So I really appreciate you getting into some of those key doctrines that Austin brought up, as well as what you uh, freely shared in response to our previous question. Um, I, I want to touch, though, next on on something that even you alluded to a few moments ago, and, and that is that there seems to be a lot of ambiguity amongst um, evangelicals, particularly some evangelical leaders, regarding the theological differences that exist between Protestants and Roman Catholics. You know, it's interesting. I was just reading R.C. Sproul's biography and, and in that biography by Stephen Nichols, um, R.C. Sproul of Life, um, Nichols notes that R.C. lost some relationships over this very issue, namely that 
there are very important theological differences between Roman Catholics and Protestants and that those differences need not be undermined. Think of uh, the Evangelicals and Catholics Together movement, the Manhattan Declaration, uh, these different attempts really over the past 50 years or so to, 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 I would say, downplay some key theological differences between, as you pointed out, Mike, two completely different systems of religion. So I just would want to say, uh, by, by way of this next question, if you'd be willing to answer, um, why do you think modern-day Protestants are so ignorant about Roman Catholicism? So where, where does the ignorance come from? Um, number two, why would leaders who should know better, uh, why would leaders who should know better about the theological differences uh, between Roman Catholics and Protestants, why do they downplay them? Uh, what would be what would be the reason or the the uh, the goals or the um, positive outcomes that would come about undermining or downplaying those theological differences? And then third, uh, I know that's a lot I just threw your way and, and I can remind you of them if needed. But third, what what can we do as Christians practically to remedy some of the ambiguity that exists today um, about what Roman Catholics believe and, and maybe even to um, to remedy when leaders in the evangelical church downplay those differences? How can we as Christians combat some of these issues? Yeah, that's that's a lot to talk about, but it really comes down to we have a different gospel. And in Galatians 1, verses 6 to 9, Paul drives a stake in the ground. The Judaizers, they believed in the Lord Jesus just as Catholics do. They believed in his death and resurrection and that he will come again to judge the living and the dead just as Roman Catholics do. But Paul recognized that they wanted to add one requirement to the gospel of grace. And that is, if you're a Gentile, you not only need to believe in Christ, but you need to be circumcised. Well, Paul didn't say, let's have unity with these professing Christians. He didn't call them brothers in Christ. He issued an anathema. And that word anathema means to be turned over to God for destruction, to be accursed because they dared to add one requirement to the gospel of grace, therefore denying the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, when you look at the Catholic plan of salvation, listen to all the requirements that the Catholic Church has added to the gospel of grace. Number one, you must be baptized by water. That's the sacrament of regeneration and justification. Then you have to attend the sacrifice of the mass as a propitiatory sacrifice for the sins you committed in the previous week. You have to do good works. In fact, at the Reformation, the reformers cried out the five solas that you've mentioned. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and according to scripture alone. Well, the Roman Catholic Church says that you must do good works in order to be justified. And so they even go so far as to issue an anathema for anyone who denies that works are necessary for justification. The Catholic Church has also added a requirement, and that is you have to keep the law in order to be saved. And that's paragraph 2068 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Well, you know that in Galatians 3, if anybody tries to obtain salvation by the law, that places them under a curse. No one can obey the law perfectly. In fact, James in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, if you were to keep the whole law perfectly and stumble at one part, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. And so all these requirements have been added to the gospel of grace by the Catholic Church. And by the authority of Scripture, we can say their bishops, and all their clergy are under divine condemnation for teaching another gospel. And so all that to say that why are evangelicals signing unity accords with a Roman Catholic religion that's under a divine curse by Almighty God? And by the way, the Roman Catholic Church has issued over 100 anathemas to born-again Christians. And so you've got the Catholic Church condemning evangelicals with their anathemas and the word of God condemning Catholics for preaching another gospel. There can be no unity. We have a different gospel. We also have a different way of being born again. The Bible says you're born again by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. 
Rome says, no, it's through water baptism. As I shared, a different method of justification. The Bible says it is by faith apart from works. Rome says, no, it must have faith and works. We're divided on how one is purified of sin. The Bible clearly says it's only by the precious blood of Jesus. Rome says, no, it's by the fires of purgatory. We're divided on who mediates between God and man. The Bible says there's one, God's perfect man and man's perfect God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Rome says, oh no, there's another sinless mediator. Her name is Mary. Or you can go through the priest to dispense salvation through the sacraments. So we differ on the efficacy, the sufficiency, and the necessity of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Catholic Church teaches you don't even need Jesus. They say that Muslims are part of God's plan of salvation. Paragraph 841 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Oh, so often I wish I could sit down with all of these evangelicals that have signed unity accords with Catholics and go through these differences. But I must say that some of them are deliberately signing these unity accords out of willful ignorance because I have met with some of these leaders and I have given them the differences between biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism in one of our gospel tracts entitled Roman Catholicism, Scripture versus Tradition. I show that they're on a different path to eternity, the wide road to destruction, and Christians are on the narrow road that leads to life. You ask, why would they do this? You know, only God knows their hearts, but I know that oftentimes we have to guard against the flesh because we want to be more popular, more influential. Um, we want to be loved by more people. And so rather than taking a hard line on the distinctives of the gospel and what separates believers from unbelievers, we tend to paint what God has painted black and white as gray. And I think a great passage of 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18, I've often used this to share with these evangelical leaders, what does Christ have in common with Belial? What does light have in common with darkness? What do believers have in common with unbelievers? You know, a lot of times I think they want to sign these unity accords so that Catholics can be co-belligerents with us to fight the social and moral wars that lay before us, the godless society that we're in. But when you look at church history and even Old Testament history, God never sought believers to have unity with unbelievers. He has used remnants in the past to win victory after victory so that God gets all the glory. And so for evangelicals to sign unity accords with unbelievers to fight these battles instead of depending on uniting as the body of Christ to fight them. It's just totally wrong. All the way through scripture, we see that. And so I've written a book called Contending for the Gospel. And the motivation for writing the book was because the ecumenical movement is gathering steam. You mentioned the Manhattan Declaration. Over 640,000 evangelicals have signed the Manhattan Declaration. And I believe most of them have signed it because the evangelical leaders have signed it. My wife and I had a meeting with the then president of Dallas Theological Seminary, Mark Bailey. We pleaded with him to take his name off the Manhattan Declaration. I told him that everybody already knew where you stood on the issue of abortion and the sanctity of marriage. And, but now no one knows where you stand on the issue of Roman Catholicism. You're confusing people. In fact, what these evangelical leaders are doing is they're putting the gospel off limits to Catholics because by their statement, there are brothers and sisters in Christ that discourages people from evangelizing them. Why would they evangelize a brother and sister? So after talking with Mark Bailey, I, I said, please take your name off because you're a major influence and people are confused. And his response was, well, Al Mohler signed it. My wife said, you've just made Mike's point. You're pointing to another influential evangelical as a reason for signing it. And so that's why the average evangelical doesn't know what the Roman Catholic Church represents. Is it a mission field that needs the gospel? Or as our leaders are saying, are they a Christian denomination made up of brothers and sisters in Christ? 
I'm uh, very discouraged about what's happening, but we know from scripture that the Lord said these things would happen. There would be a growing apostasy, people falling away from the faith. He even asked the question in Luke 8, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Luke 18. And so I guess we need to be aware that we're living in the end times where people don't want sound doctrine anymore. They want their ears tickled. They want to be made happy instead of holy. And so we've got to fight the good fight of faith. And you ask, what can we do as Christians? Well, we need to let our voices be heard. You know, when we hear a lie of the devil, we need to stand up and defend the glory and honor of our great God and Savior. We need to defend the sanctity of his church. We need to defend the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. Because what's at stake if we don't? The eternal destiny of those who are being deceived. So thank you for the opportunity to share a great burden I have that we do need to stand firm on the gospel, just as the reformers did. These evangelicals are basically saying the Reformation was a mistake. Let's just come together now and unite once again. Thank you for your thoughts there and your um, ministry of evangelizing Roman Catholics with the gospel. Um, our next question is, in your experience, what have been some of the most effective ways to make Roman Catholics aware of their errors associated with their religion? We've mentioned some of them and the distinctives that we have as Protestants with them. Uh, do you have any particular theological or historical arguments that you tend to use in, in reference uh, to these distinctives whenever you're evangelizing Roman Catholics? Yeah, that's such an important question because I've seen so many Protestants and evangelicals leave their church to join the Roman Catholic religion. And I can tell you every one of them, and I've seen probably close to 100 in my 31 years of ministry, not one of them has ever left because of Scripture, because of the Word of God. Many of them leave because they've studied church history. They've looked at the early church fathers. They're drawn to the Eucharist as the physical presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's never because of Scripture. It's because of studying church history and finding out that the Catholic Church is the one true church founded by Christ. You see, people don't realize that Christ only founded one church, but what happened along the way was some drifted into apostasy. We see apostasy starting in the first century, 1 John 2.19. They went out from us because they were never part of us. Had they been part of us, they would have remained with us. Another way John could have said that, they went out from us because they were never born again. And so they started an apostate form of Christianity. And that's really what happened to the Roman Catholic Church. I think many people would point to its genesis in the fourth century during the era of Constantine. He looked at a fragmented Roman Empire, and he thought Christianity could be the glue that would reunite the Roman Empire. And so he made it the official religion. And he allowed people to come into the church through the baptismal font. You didn't have to repent or have any faith. Just go through the sacrament of baptism and you belong to the church. Well, you can imagine without any repentance, many pagans brought their pagan traditions and pagan practices. And many of the traditions of the Catholic Church that you see today are a result of those pagan traditions coming into the church. And so when we witness to Roman Catholics, they want to talk about the early church fathers well, I point them to really some of the last words the Apostle Paul gave before he went to glory. He's standing before the Ephesian elders, and he says, Even from your own number, men will arise for the purpose of distorting the truth to lead people away from the truth. And then he, he just knew this was going to happen, and he, he said these words with warning, Be on guard. This is going to happen. So when Catholics want me to read the early church fathers, I say, how do you know that these aren't the very people that Paul warned us about, that from your own number, men will arise to distort the truth? No, we need to build our theology on the inspired word of God, not on the uninspired words of men. 
oh, if, if Roman Catholics could just focus on that. Don't look at your pope and your bishops and your priest. Build your theology on the inspired word of God. Test every man's teaching with the word of God. And so when we witness to Roman Catholics, that's what we need to do. We need to keep pointing them to the scripture, pointing them to what the Lord Jesus said, pointing them to the plan of salvation that's gloriously revealed in scripture. Again, Catholics will be unwilling to let go of what they're doing until they know Christ is sufficient. And I must warn all the well-meaning Christians when they evangelize Roman Catholics, they have been indoctrinated from the time they can think. The power of indoctrination is huge. I just witnessed to a cardiologist in Lafayette, Louisiana, and it didn't matter what scripture I shared with him. He just dismissed it, deflected it, and went back to the early church fathers and Roman Catholic tradition. So we know from 2 Corinthians 4.4 that the devil blinds the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ. One of the greatest tools that he uses is religious indoctrination and religious pride. And as the Apostle Paul instructed us in 2 Timothy 2, we are to pray for those in opposition to the gospel, that God would grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, so they can escape the snare of the devil that holds them captive to do his will. The only way they can be set free is to listen to the words of Jesus in John 8. He said, a true disciple of mine is one who abides in my word, then they will know the truth, and that truth will set them free. Free from what? Free from religious deception, free from religious bondage. As long as people are looking to other authorities, the veil of blindness remains. But in 2 Corinthians 3, it says, when you turn to Christ and trust him, the veil of blindness is removed from your heart. So that's what we need to urge Roman Catholics to do. Look to Christ in his word, trust him in his word. That's your only hope of salvation. Amen. Well, over the past, I would say five to seven years now, I've had opportunities to go to college campuses and, and do street evangelism in, um, in Dallas-Fort Worth and out in California when I was a student at the Master's University. And whenever I would have the opportunity to engage with Roman Catholics at that age, um, e even as you know, 18 to 22-year-old uh, students in college, they were so much more knowledgeable about um, the early church fathers and and um, and certain confessions that had been um, produced by uh, the the medieval church and, and the pre-Reformation church and even during the Reformation church with the Council of Trent, um, you know the the, the so-called Counter Reformation, if you will, um, and and they they were so knowledgeable about their their select passages from those resources. And, but they had no idea what the Bible taught on so many different subjects. And what I like to do, in addition to pointing them to Scripture uh, as the ultimate starting point, what I would like to do is I would I would take their church fathers that they had cherry-picked, the quotes they really like to pull out, sometimes completely out of context, but nonetheless, they would pull out their quotes or they would they would cite some um, some church council declaration that had been made. And I would take those and I would try to show them maybe some areas where that same council or that same individual from church history, they said something completely contrary in a different part of their writings. And just to show them just what Luther emphasized before the Diet of Worms, councils and popes have erred. Men are fallible. The word of God does not err. It is infallible. And it is the word of God and the word of God alone that is the ultimate source of authority for how we live in this world, for how we understand God and how we understand how we can have a relationship with God. So, Mike, I completely agree with everything you've just set forth to our listeners and um, would just encourage everybody listening to today's episode, um, regardless of your denomination, regardless of um, you're a Protestant or Roman Catholic, go to the word of God for your understanding of who God is, and, and what God requires of sinful man to have a relationship with him and for how we're called as his image bearers to live in this world. And Mike, just by way of, of drawing our conversation to a conclusion today, um, talking about evangelizing Roman Catholics, and we've really appreciated everything you've had to say so far. I just want to give you the opportunity 
to offer some final words of encouragement to those who are Christians that are listening to today's episode? Uh, what words of encouragement would you give to them? And I know you've given many so far today, but just by way of conclusion, what words of encouragement would you give to them as they seek to reach Roman Catholics with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And then if you feel led to do so, maybe um, a, a loving a, a challenge or um, a, a loving appeal to any Roman Catholics who are going to listen to this episode at some time in the future, what would you say to them as well? Well, sure. As you have shared, the Word of God is so important. If Roman Catholics would only look to a man they call their first Pope, Peter, he said that the Word of God is the imperishable seed that brings forth eternal life when it falls on fertile soil. And so as Christians, we need to sow the seed of God's imperishable Word. That's the only hope anyone has. Even James talked about the Word of God bringing forth life. I often tell Catholics, I don't want you to believe what I believe. I want you to believe the Word of God. That's all I'm doing is I'm pointing you to the authority of Scripture. Believe the Word of God and you will be set free from religious deception and religious bondage. That's our only hope. And again, I think one of the most important things that we can share with Roman Catholics, not only the supreme authority of Scripture, there is no higher authority than Almighty God. I think Catholics would all agree with that. And he has revealed himself through his inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible word. And so that must become everyone's supreme authority. The second thing, the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. He did everything necessary to save sinners completely and forever. That's why we are saved by grace apart from works. In fact, Paul said in Romans eleven six, if it is by grace, it's not of works. Otherwise, grace is not grace. Well, Satan knows this. That's why every religion in the world teaches a works righteousness salvation. Roman Catholics do the same thing. In doing so, they nullify the only means by which God saves sinners, and that's by his grace, grace alone. And so we need to emphasize the importance of letting go of all you're doing. Come to the cross with empty hands of faith, bringing nothing but your sins. The other thing is that the very nature of deception is that people do not know they're deceived until they are confronted with the truth. When I opened the Bible and began reading it, for the first time at age 35, I was confronted with the truth of God's word. I came to the point, should I trust Christ and his word or the teachings and traditions of my religion? I knew I couldn't believe both. That's when God granted me repentance and eyes to see that Christ alone is my savior. And so I, I wrote a book called Preparing for Eternity that lays it out the same way the Lord saved me. I Put the Word of God on one side, the tra tradi traditions of the Roman Catholic religion on the other, and it forces Catholics that are reading it to make that same decision. Should I choose Christ and His Word or the teachings and traditions of my religion? And that's where repentance comes in. It's a change of mind. I used to believe that the Catholic Church was telling me the truth. Now I see the truth of God's Word goes against that. I must change my mind, change my direction, and ultimately come out of the Catholic Church and worship God in spirit and in truth. And so there's a lot for Christians who witness the Roman Catholics to say. But again, the important part is point them to the Word of God. That's where the authority is, and that's where the life-giving Word is. The other thing I would encourage is um, we started our ministry by showing gospel videos. Some people feel like, well, I, I just don't know how to witness. Well, how about inviting people over and sharing a gospel video? And um, we'll see what the Word of God does. We'll see what the gospel does when it goes forth. Roman Catholics need to hear the gospel. They're not going to hear it in the Catholic Church. And that's why I want to thank you guys for doing a podcast. This is one of the ways we can reach Roman Catholics by making the word available through technology that the Lord provides us. We have so many testimonies of Catholics who listen to Christian radio, called our ministry and wanted more information, wanted to know how they could know for sure 
that they could go to heaven when they died. So that's what our ministry is all about, equipping the body of Christ to be effective witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in this huge mission field of 1.3 billion precious souls. I have a great burden to reach Catholics because they are where I was, believing I was in the one true church, believing that my religion could save me, but yet destined for an eternity in hell. The Lord Jesus spoke of two roads that lead to eternity. One is a narrow road that leads to life and very few find it. In fact, Jesus in Luke's gospel said you must strive to enter it. Why, does, why the striving? Well, because in the context of Matthew 7, there's false teachers standing in front of the narrow gate saying it's not here, it's the broad way. And so if you really want to know the true way, you have to diligently search the scriptures to find the true way, to find out if the teachers are really teaching the truth. And so the wide road is made up of many, and it's a road that leads to destruction. We need to have a greater compassion and love for those who are traveling the wide road. So thank you for this opportunity. And if there's any Catholics listening to this, please abide in God's word. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Amen. And uh, thank you, Brother uh, Mike, for coming on to have this conversation with us about evangelizing Roman Catholics. We do uh, commend his charge to you. If you are a Catholic listening, please search the scriptures for truth. And uh, we do hope that this conversation has been helpful for uh, Protestants to think about how you can evangelize Roman Catholics with the gospel. Uh, we do encourage you to check out our brother's ministry. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, we do hope listeners that you will consider these uh, important things that we've talked about and take them to heart. And until next time, we wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.